Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. Today, Pastor Jason Coker is continuing our Advent series, A Light in the Darkness. This teaching is from Isaiah, chapter 35, verses 1 through 7, titled, Joy in Bloom. Well, welcome back again to the Oceanside Sanctuary. Uh, we are in the midst of our Advent series, and so we're exploring the different themes of Advent. For those of you who may be uh, like me, did not grow up in churches that practice the Christian calendar. Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, and Advent means coming. When something is in Advent, it is coming, and so we're practicing the coming of Christ on Christmas and how that represents the coming of God in other ways in our lives, including the return of Christ in some way. And so this is a season when we're intentionally remembering those things. And that's why we light these candles up here. So for those of you, again, like me, who weren't raised in a tradition that practices some of those liturgical elements, these candles for the Advent wreath represent the themes we talk about each week. And this week's theme is joy. So our sermon today is called Joy in Bloom. It's called Joy in Bloom for a couple of obvious reasons, but the first reason is because when I think of joy and when I imagine what joy must be like, uh, one of my favorite images of that is how flowers bloom. And here in Southern California, recently we've had this amazing phenomenon every spring of super blooms in the desert because we've, we've had these sort of enormous bouts of rain right towards the end of the winter, and then that always triggers what's called a kind of super bloom in some of the Southern California deserts. Recently, this actually caused some problems. I love this article from last spring, comes from the Wall Street Journal, and the article is titled, Selfie-Seeking Tourists Are Crushing California's Super Bloom. So this is sort of a, a sign of the times, right? I just love how this article sort of depicts what's going on. This is Lake Elsinore, California. For those of you who don't know, Lake Elsinore is not exactly known as a tourist mecca in Southern California. But last year at this time, they were just overwhelmed with a super bloom in Lake Elsinore. And so I love how this story unpacks the difficulties there. It's uh, from March 24th of last year. And it says this, American cities often tout attractions to draw crowds, but this city, 90 minutes east of Los Angeles, is trying to keep them away. Tens of thousands of visitors are showing up every day, drawn by the so-called super bloom that has blanketed hillsides in orange, yellow, and purple flowers after a winter of heavy rain in Southern California. Last weekend, traffic on Interstate 15 slowed to a standstill, and some people simply parked on the shoulder and got out. A city worker who was called in to help manage traffic in Walker Canyon, which is a bloom epicenter. Did you know that there's such a thing as a bloom epicenter? Last weekend, a city worker who was called in to help manage, a tra manage traffic was hit by a car ramming through a barricade. He sustained minor in injuries, and the city declared a public safety crisis. The city declared, the city of Lake Elsinore declared a public safety crisis because of the people coming out to see the flowers in the desert. The story continues, California has sprouted super blooms before. What's different this season is that visitors and Instagram influencers have turned the wildflowers into a backdrop for yoga poses, romantic cuddling, cute baby shots, and even product placement. 
Drew Strauss saw three topless women perched on a bluff taking photos while families roamed nearby. It was a lot of people in floppy hats and big delusions of grandeur, basically, said Mr. Strauss, an L.A. musician. Locals awaiting the superbloom to wilt have spurred their own social media trend, hashtag Apopocalypse 2019. Apopocalypse. One of the reasons I love this story, and for the past several years, this has been a thing in Southern California, is because I think there's really no better image of hope than flowers blooming in the desert. You know, desert is a place that's known for for being arid, for being dry, essentially for being dead or devoid of life. And then in the midst of this dry, arid Southern California desert, or in the midst of a town like Elsinore that otherwise seems dead and dry, there's an explosion of life. Uh, And that, to me, is a great representation of joy. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to gather around Scripture, gather around your prophetic word and how the, the art of Scripture, the poetry of Scripture creates vivid images for how you are at work in our lives. We ask that you would teach us what it looks like to enjoy the present moment of hope that tells us about something to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This was our passage today. Uh, Luke and Lindsay read it for us as they lit the Advent candles. We're going to go a little bit farther into this passage, but I just wanted to put it back up here for you because it uses this same image. Uh, Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1, says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall, shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly, and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of the Lebanon shall be given to it, and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. What's happening here, of course, is Isaiah is speaking a word of hope, a word of prophetic comfort to the people of Israel, because they have been like a dry desert. They have been without hope, without life, without any sense that that they are enjoying the blessing of God that they're expecting as the people of God. Isaiah then brings this image of hope. He says, good things are coming to you. God is going to fulfill his promises. And in conveying that word, he uses this same image of flowers blooming in the desert. Let's continue in verse 3. Then he goes on and sort of shifts gears. He moves on from that poetic language of flowers blooming blooming in the desert to new images that convey hope. It says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And so this hope that's coming, this hope that Isaiah is speaking about, is a hope that would strengthen people who are otherwise weak. That, of course, is what it means to be in a desert. That's what it means to be without life. It means that you're struggling to persevere through the difficulties of life. 
And so Isaiah's message here is God is coming to strengthen you. God's coming to make you more capable. God is coming to open the eyes of those who are blind and the ears of those who are deaf. So God is going to do this tangible thing to bring about life for you where there is no life. Verses 6 and 7, Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For water shall break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, and the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The imagery here just continues to repeat and becomes, I think, more and more hopeful as the prophet uses these sort of poetic, prophetic images to say, the experience you're having now is going to change. Something good is coming. And that is the experience of joy. When that good thing has come and we experience our sort of leaping, internal leaping in response to the thing we've always been hoping for, the thing we've always been waiting for, when it finally comes to you. And rather than like try to pick apart what Isaiah means by joy here, because this is, again, poetic language, and rather than like turn to a dictionary and try to understand what joy is, uh, what I'd like to do today is tell you three stories of joy. Three very small ways that I've experienced joy in just the past couple of weeks that I think help me to understand what joy is, number one, and number two, how joy comes, which maybe is more important. At least for me, it's helpful to know that I can put myself in a position to experience joy. And that's important because uh, for much of my life, and I'm sure much of yours, it feels like I'm struggling to get what I want, struggling to get what I think I need. And so the ability to put myself in a position to experience the joy of God is terribly helpful. So the first is this, the first uh, experience of joy that I've had in recent weeks, believe it or not, you're totally going to believe it because I'm obsessed with this, is Thanksgiving, right? So I know I sometimes talk about Thanksgiving, especially around Thanksgiving, but I've also been known to talk about Thanksgiving in the summer and the spring and any other time. I just enjoy big tables full of food, right? But really what I enjoy, of course, is the people around the table. This year was a different Thanksgiving for us. Janelle and I often host very large Thanksgivings, and every year it got bigger and bigger. It starts to, you know, like word gets out. Right. And so I think last year we were up to around 40 people who came to the house and we don't have like a huge house. Our, 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 our table was like extending out onto the deck. And, that, and that's a lot of fun, but it's also, you know, a lot of work and all of that. And this year we decided for the first time in several years to sort of quiet things down and just have a Thanksgiving for our household. And for this, this was especially meaningful because we have three daughters and all three of them are out of the house. So our youngest is 18. She's in her first year of college. Our middle daughter is 20. She's in her third year of college. Our oldest daughter is 26. And she's in graduate school in LA. They all live out of the house now. So this was the first Thanksgiving where all three of our children came back to the house and unfortunately brought their boyfriends. But, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, you got to suffer sometimes, right? The worst part is all their boyfriends are ridiculously sweet and nice and entirely likable, which I hate. Right? 
But, but we had this lovely, just family Thanksgiving. And as we sort of looked around the table and did cheesy things like, you know, recite the things that we were thankful for, I was just so struck, not just by the fact that we were reunited, but I was so touched and moved by the fact that these three people were becoming the incredible people that they were created to be. And, and if you have kids and you've seen your kids grow, even if they're young, if you've seen your kids grow, then you know something of that joy. When you look at them and you say, oh, look at what they're becoming. Look at who they're created to be. And I can tell you as somebody whose kids are now all 18 to 26, that it is extraordinarily joyful to look and see that they're entering into the fullness of their gifts, uh, the fullness of their potential, and they're becoming like just decent people, like the kind of people that you want to be around. That's a wonderful joy. And so that was my Thanksgiving. It was a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope yours was too. I know they aren't always, uh, but that was our experience this year. Second uh, taste of joy that I, I've had recently was yesterday. Yesterday, our church hosted our first ever homeless resource fair. And I was blown away by what happened yesterday. You know, for the longest time, we have had homeless dinners and we've had, you know, cafes with music that we hosted for folks. But we decided that we wanted to step out and see if we could have a little bit more impact and invite people from the community to come out and offer resources to, to offer a little bit additional assistance besides just food. And for those of you who know her, Vanessa Graziano, who couldn't be here today, she is helping Phil to really coordinate these things, Phil Wellful. And the two of them just put on what I thought was an outstanding opportunity for our neighbors who don't have homes to come out here and not just get a little bit of food, but, you know, get warm hats and blankets and coats and also to get their hair cut if they needed it, all kinds of great things. In the future, we're planning on having a shower truck here, all kinds of things to make their lives a little bit easier. Uh, we had a, re a resource booth for Narcotics Anonymous for folks who are ready to start getting sober because that's such a big need for people who are often living on the street. The joy for that for me was not just seeing that there were people in need who are having their needs met in some small way. The joy was seeing all of you and people from outside this church, this community, coming together in the neighborhood to do that. That was incredibly joyful. And kind of like my kids, right? Like my Thanksgiving with my kids, that, that spark of joy came from seeing that this is how their lives should be, right? Like they're becoming the people that God created them to be. Their potential is being fulfilled. I saw a glimpse of that same thing here yesterday. There are people who showed up here, least of all me, who were fulfilling what God created them to do and to be. You know, there's that an overwhelming sense as I looked around that, you know, this is just how it should be in neighborhoods and in communities that have people who are struggling and poor. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but right now in North County and in Oceanside included, there's an enormous amount of hate and frustration for people who are poor and people who live on the street. It's, it's hard every day to pull up my Facebook feed and see some of the incredibly hateful comments that are directed towards people who are just down and out, for whatever reason. 
And so yesterday it was uh, incredibly joyful to see a group of people set that aside and say, no, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be somebody who follows after God. It means to be joined with others in solidarity to meet each other's needs. To me, it felt like this is what it should be like. And so I, I experienced joy in that. Third story. Also, this weekend, uh, when I came in on uh, Friday, Janelle and I came in here on Friday, and we were doing some work because we're starting some remodel uh, in, the, in this space next door, uh, started doing some work, and I walked in, and the, the stage didn't look like this. It looked a little bit like this, but it looked like this times 10. There were all kinds of like decorations all over the stage because this weekend our church was able to host a posada for the Crown Heights neighborhood. Now, for those of you who don't know what a posada is, it is a Christmas practice from communities in Mexico where the nine days leading up to Christmas, every day they enact a procession for nine days leading up to Christmas to remember what it was like for the, the, uh, the family of Christ to come to the inn and not have room. And so this is a nine-day procession and a nine-day feast where you go to different people's houses and different neighborhoods and you bring the baby Jesus, you knock on the door, you ask for a place to stay, they let you in, you like put the baby Jesus in a manger and then you all have a party. Now, what sounds bad about that? Like, absolutely nothing, right? <laughs> right. And so this is a practice that's becoming more and more common in the United States because we have neighbors from south of the border who are immigrating to the United States and they're bringing these practices with them. And so Friday we came in and this place was decorated for a local posada because there are families in Crown Heights who didn't have enough places to hold their posada for nine days. And so Lived Experiences, which is one of our partners, they, they reside here in the building and they operate a youth outreach they came to me and said, hey, we have some families in Crown Heights. They don't have enough places to do their posada. Could, we, could they do it in your church this year? And I said, absolutely. Sorry, I didn't ask you guys. <laughs> but when I came in on Friday and I saw the, the decorations and I heard the stories of what happened, Alex was actually here and told me a little bit about what it was like. Janelle and I couldn't be here for the party itself. I, I was filled with joy because, again, I had this sense that this is what it should be like. Now, these are families who are overwhelmingly Catholic, and that's okay, by the way. Like, we're one of those churches that believes that whether you're Catholic or Baptist or Mennonite or Methodist or even, believe it or not, Episcopalian, we still consider you brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the fact that we could, in this church, host a, a group of families to celebrate their practice of posada fills me with joy because it, it represents, again, that there really is no us and them. That we are all gathered around the same hope in Christ. And so here's what I want to suggest to you. These are all my experiences of joy. I don't know what your experiences of joy have been like. But I, I want to suggest to you that what Isaiah 35 teaches us and what I recognize in my own experience of joy is that joy is actually a moment 
an experience of the future. It's a remembrance of what God promises to come in our lives. And Paul, the apostle, actually, I think, gives us a nice explanation for how that's possible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is just the introduction to his letter to the Corinthians. He's explaining to them uh, why he wasn't able to come to, for a visit recently. And then he goes on to say something that's incredibly theologically rich and powerful, in my opinion. I'm just going to jump in at verse 19. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. In other words, when we proclaimed Christ to you, it was not, yes, this is what's you know, coming, and no, that's not coming. It was yes and no. It was yes and amen. Right? Because he goes on and says, it was not yes and no, but in him, that is, in Christ, it is always yes. For in him, every one of God's promises is a yes. What are God's promises? God's promises are that he will bring about a future that is good for all people, that is a blessing for all people. It's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In those days, the mountain of the Lord will be lifted up as chief among all the mountains, and all people will stream to it. All people will learn from the Lord, and all the swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. This is the future promise of God. And in Christ Jesus, all promises are yes. In other words, in Christ, when we are placed in Christ, when we put our faith in Christ, we are even now experiencing God's future promises in some way. He goes on to say this, for this reason it is through him, that is through Christ, that we say amen to the glory of God. Verse 21, but it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, this is the key bit, verse 22, by putting his seal on us and giving us his spirit in our hearts as a first installment. Now, I generally love the NRSV, but I hate the way that it's worded here. Uh, in other versions, maybe in your version, instead of first installment, it might be a deposit or a down payment, or my favorite, which is King James, actually, believe it or not, not my favorite version of the Bible. That's okay, I'll take it in this case, because in the King James, it says a foretaste, a foretaste of what's to come. In other words, when we have placed our faith in Christ, the Spirit of God has been placed in us, God's own Spirit, as a deposit, as a down payment, as a guarantee, and as a foretaste of those future promises. Now, just so that that doesn't sound religious, let me just say it another way at the risk of sounding a little bit kooky and weird, right? When you put your faith in God, the future promises of God become true for you now in some way. You literally, you and I and all of us together, become a sign and a foretaste, a guarantee that God's promises are true. No, that's, that's what it means. I mean, you may not connect with that, you may not believe that, but 
When I gather around the table with my friends and my family and we enjoy genuine love with each other, we are literally experiencing by the Spirit of God the future promise of God that we will all one day be at peace. When we feed people who are hungry and we help people who are homeless and we provide people with opportunities for redemption, that is God's Spirit in us at work reaching into the future and bringing into the present some small taste of the future promise of God. It is yes and it is amen, always, now, and forevermore. And I know that we don't always feel that way, but we can put ourselves in those situations and literally taste God's future. That's what's happening in those moments. When we open up a Protestant church, a Disciples of Christ congregation, for a local Hispanic family to practice posada here so that they can remember how the family of Christ were turned away at the doors, we are saying we don't turn anyone away at the doors, no matter what color your skin is or what your particular affinity for Christ is. We are open. Our table is accessible because God welcomed us too. Right? And that is a taste of the future. When we experience joy, when we experience joy, when something bursts forth in us like blossoms in the desert, we are literally experiencing the way things are supposed to be, and our heart is responding to that. We are living in the future in that present moment. Now, three ways I think that we can uh, help ourselves and help each other to experience that. So three questions that I would like you to ask as we seek to experience the joy of God and live in God's future now. The first question is, when was the last time you experienced some measure of joy? When was the last time you could say that your heart leaped in that way because it recognized this is how things should be? I want to invite you to remember what that time was. Was it yesterday? Was it last week? Was it last year? Was it 10 years ago? When's the last time that your heart swelled with the present enjoyment of the fulfillment of God's future. What were you doing? Who were you with? Second question, when you experienced that joy, when you were in that moment, what future hope were you remembering? I think this is an important question because it helps us connect with what God is doing in our lives. When you experience that incredible upwelling of hope that burst forth in something that was greater than happiness, something that was deeper than mere enjoyment or pleasure, something that was uh, deeply pervasive and called to your spirit in a way that said, this is how life should be. Who were you with? What were you experiencing? And what future hope is that connecting you to? What promises of God are you hopeful for? And then the last question, how can you put yourself in those situations again? 
Because you can do that. Who do you need to be reconnected with around the table? So that you can experience the joy of a future that is full of love and peace and reconciliation. Who do you need to serve? What can you show up for that's providing a bit of hope for somebody who's hopeless? What gifts, what resources, what grace has God given you that is overflowing in your life so that you can show up and then offer that abundance to somebody else who's in need and therefore experience the joy of God's good future where everybody, and I mean everybody, I don't care what you look like or where you come from or what language you speak, where everybody has enough. How can you put yourself in a situation where you can experience that joy, that future that God has to offer? How can you put yourself in a situation or an opportunity that allows you to embrace a larger group of people than you are normally exposed to? Who's missing in your normal, everyday existence? Because God, part of God's future hope, God, part of God's future promise, is that every tongue and every tribe and every nation would be able to praise and worship God in peace and truth and goodness. And our churches tend not to reflect that kind of broad diversity. How can we put ourselves in situations where we're being stretched to include people who normally aren't in our lives? Because that's part of God's good future, too. I think the answer to those three questions will put us in situations to experience more joy in our lives. That's been my experience, and I'd be willing to bet that's been your experience, too. Let's pray today that the Lord would open our eyes and ears so that we know how to do it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much again for this day and for how your prophetic words inspire us and challenge us and stretch us to grow and become the kinds of people who don't just hope but also experience the joy of your future in this present moment. Lord, teach us to be people who are not only remembering your future, but are acting it out each and every day in some small way. Lord, teach us to be a people who, because of our ability to remember and embody your future, are bringing your future about in tangible ways in this neighborhood, in this community in our homes and in our workplaces, in school. Teach us to become a people who are genuinely joyful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, would you stand with me? Let's sing together one last time. I want to leave you with this thought. If a super bloom of flowers in the California desert brings people from all over the world to see it, then what would it be like if the church were to super bloom with joy? Who would come to see it? And why aren't we normally like that? <laughs>
If we're people of the future, then where is that joy that promises that God's promises are good? Let's sing. Thank you.